going to continue this morning, shake some cobwebs loose, and continue with our 10th week in our study that we've titled Our Glorious God, our study of God's attributes. We've said throughout, just by way of reminder, that attributes are simply descriptions of God, and we've been making our way through again now for 10 weeks, doing just a fairly high-level survey of God's attributes, those things that describe his character, who he is. We've broken our study down into attributes of greatness and attributes of goodness with an attribute of greatness and goodness right in the middle, which Pastor Adam taught us when he taught on holiness. So we are a couple weeks into studying goodness or attributes of goodness, those attributes that emphasize God's perfection in how he deals with his creatures and how he deals in relationship to all that he's made, that he is gracious, that he's just, loving attributes like those. Last week, Ben taught us on grace and mercy and those important attributes of the Lord. We have about six or seven weeks remaining in our study, all on attributes of goodness. And just one note, we will be taking a pause on Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. You'll see an notice in your bulletin, but on that Sunday, our service times will remain the same as they currently are, 8 to 9.15 and 10.45 to noon, but we won't have Sunday school in between. After first service and then again early prior to second service, we'll have a time of refreshments and a time for fellowship. So plan on staying a little after early service or first service if that's the service you attend. Plan on coming a little bit early to second service and enjoying some refreshments and fellowship on Resurrection Sunday. So this morning, we're going to turn our attention to God's righteousness and justice, that God is righteous and just. Those, when we consider God's attributes, those terms are, are almost going to be used interchangeably. I'm going to use them essentially synonymously today. That God is righteous is to say that God is just, and the terminology in Scripture is extremely close. So Based on even recent conversations in our society, sometimes justice, we can talk about justice in and of itself, and there's a place for that. But when we talk about God's righteousness as an attribute or God's justness or how he executes justice, they're really one and the same idea. He's just because he's righteous. He exercises justice in accordance with his righteousness. I want to start this morning just by saying the importance, stating the importance of God's righteousness and our understanding of God's righteousness for understanding our place as Christians, as believers in Christ before God. Pastor Adam just preached a a sermon and will preach again in the second service, a sermon that really deals a lot with the requirements of Christ's work and what it means for us. And all of these things flow from the fact that God is righteous. And we're going to talk about that a lot this morning in our Sunday school time. We must understand God's righteousness to rightly have have an understanding of our place before God in Christ, or if you're not in Christ, to understand where you stand before righteous God. Our understanding of the gospel that we believe, the gospel that we proclaim, requires that we understand something of the God who stands behind our justification, our justification, that is our being declared righteous. The doctrine of justification by faith, that is that we are declared righteous, that we stand righteous with Christ's righteousness, that only makes sense 
if we understand that God is a righteous judge who must punish unrighteousness. And when you come to grips with what the scriptures say about God being righteous and just in humility, if you accept that, you recognize the great peril of your soul before Almighty God, apart from his wonderful work in Christ. If God is righteous, if he is just, if he is bound to do what is right, then he is bound to punish sin. And if we rightly recognize where we stand before him, we realize that we rightly, righteously deserved condemnation, that there is guilt. Again, if you were in first service, though, you heard the word propitiation from 1 John chapter 2 with reference to Christ's saving death, and that is that Christ satisfied God's righteous wrath when he was punished as our substitute. And this was required. It was required if God was going to save sinners because of his righteousness. So God's righteousness is one of the key points in our theology proper, our doctrine of God insofar as we're talking about the gospel because it helps us understand why propitiation was necessary why God's wrath had to be satisfied, and what it took for you and I, if you're in Christ, to be declared righteous. And when you get into, we're not going to get into justification by faith, of course, we're just going to make reference to it this morning, but just personally, even my own testimony, hearing and understanding that, it, it's, it's really how the gospel works. How, how can I be made right? How can I stand declared not guilty before Almighty God? And justification answers that question for us. And God's righteousness that stands behind that helps us understand why all of that was necessary. So let's define this. Grudem's definition is helpful. He says, God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So God always does what's right, and he himself, when we say he is righteous, is to say he is the standard of what is right. Now, you may find that definition surprising. If I had started with a pop quiz and asked you before our time to write down what is God's righteousness or to find God's righteousness, you likely would have described goodness or you likely would have described moral aspects of his character like holiness we often think of God's righteousness as moral rightness, and it certainly includes that because it's all with regard to his perfect character. But we think of it just like we would describe his goodness, his purity, his separation from all that is evil. We think that way because if you're like me, we often think of righteousness first with regard to ourselves and then with regard to God instead of first with regard to God, meaning we think about God's righteousness with reference to righteous people first. And righteousness, and when we describe righteous people, is our character, which is a moral thing. But that declaration is made with reference to God and his standards. So what do we mean when we're talking about God's righteousness? It's not just that God is good. It's that God always does what is right in accordance with the standard that is himself. He always acts rightly, he always acts justly, and he himself is the standard. So righteousness is more about God's rightness in all that he does and says than it is about just him being good, although, of course, those things are linked. You can't 
have a righteous God who's not also good, perfect, holy, all the things that we've learned thus far. But righteousness talks about how he acts, how he speaks in reference to his character. In scripture, the terminology for righteousness or justice is sometimes is used to refer to someone being acquitted, someone being declared not guilty just in, in a court case. It can mean someone proven right in a dispute. You're having an argument and, and the one person who's proven right or justified is same terminology that we come, that we get righteousness from. It also is used of human beings just to describe doing something that is right. But again, that implies a standard. So when we discuss God as righteous, we ask, well, compared to what? Well, with reference to God, there is no standard that is external to him. There is no standard external to him, no other authority by which we measure his righteousness. We don't declare God righteous based on what we think is right and good. That's a mistake that's often made. No, 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 the God that I choose to believe in, he wouldn't punish sin. He's loving or something of that sort. No, righteousness is compared to his standard, which is himself. He is righteous. His righteousness and his justice are measured against himself. He always does righteously because he is absolutely righteous. And so when we say that God is doing something in righteousness, we mean that he is operating in accordance with his character, his perfections. So when we read in the psalmist that he's righteous and that he deliver in righteousness, or Lord, because you're righteous, deliver me, the psalmist is saying, act in accordance with your perfections, with your character, and, and thus act in this way. So it's not a synonym with grace. It's not a synonym with mercy. It's not a synonym even with goodness, although all those things are related when we see the, the biblical portrayal of how God's righteousness is portrayed because when he acts, he acts in perfect accord with all of those attributes, his grace, his mercy, his love, his justice. John Frame then helpfully with those things in mind qualifies our understanding of righteousness by saying his righteousness is self-justifying based on the righteousness of his own nature and on his status as the ultimate criterion of rightness. So when we say God is righteous, we're saying God always acts in a way that is consistent with his character, that he always acts in a way that conforms to the moral law that's inherent in himself. And in this way, he is distinct from a human judge when we talk about judgment, which is related to this, that God is judge. As righteous, he is judge. He's distinct from a human judge who makes judgments based on a law external to him. But God judges in accordance with his own demands. He's always true to himself in his judgments. He never curses righteousness. He never rewards unrighteousness, for that would be to act against his own character. He's not judging based on an external standard. He's judging based on himself. It can even be helpful to think of righteousness as referring to God upholding his own holiness as it reflects his character. So righteousness, God acting rightly in accordance with who he is. 
So we move to the, the prove it section where we see the declarations and the expressions of God's righteousness in Scripture. And I'm going to run through these quick. You won't have time to flip to the verses that I'm going to read, okay? It's, this is a methodological thing, right? In Sunday school, we're doing a survey right now, systematic theology. We're looking at a lot of different Bible verses, and I can't do this without rem- reminding myself and you. They all have a context, right? I, it's, it's hard to just dive in in the middle of any passage pull it out, say, see, God's righteous, let's move on. But that's what we're going to do this morning, okay? So it's not intended to be an exposition of any of these texts. It's simply a showing, demonstrating where in Scripture we see that what we're saying about God being righteous is in fact true. So think when we say and we, we, we read God is righteous, we read of God's righteousness in these various passages, think of God acting rightly with regard to his own standard. We even saw in, in the sermon today in, in 1 John chapter 2, Jesus is called the righteous, right? He's, he's the righteous advocate. We think he is just and righteous in how he advocates for us on our behalf. He's faithful to the standard of perfection set by the Lord and based on the merits of his work. His advocacy is then right. It is just based on who he is in his character. Jesus the righteous, he acts rightly, he advocates rightly. All right, so declarations of God's righteousness. This is just simply assertions. Does the Bible say that God is righteous? You won't be surprised to know that it does. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse four. The rock his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Psalm eleven seven. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. So he is righteous, his ways are righteous. And then just a sweet note from Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, 25, he addresses the Lord as, O righteous Father, in John 17, 25. So the scriptures declare God is righteous. And then it's enlightening for us to look at the different ways that then this righteousness is expressed throughout Scripture. And so I've tried to categorize, and these certainly aren't perfect categories, and they're not hard and fast expressions, but I think it helps us see some of the nuance, the different aspects in the way that God's righteousness is discussed in Scripture. So we look at expressions of God's righteousness. Sometimes theologians divide these, and this is where they'll say, okay, Uh, And they'll start talking about justice, and they'll talk about legislative justice and retributive justice and redemptive justice and remunerative justice, and we'll talk about that. But I'm leaving them all under the category of righteousness. These are just expressions of God's righteousness. So because God is righteous, we see, first of all, that God's righteousness demands righteousness from his creatures, from his creation. He is righteous. The law that he's legislated is perfect in accordance with his righteous character, therefore it is righteous. And because of who he is and his 
always acting in accordance with who he is. He demands righteousness from his creation. We can't be anything but righteous. It's required of us. Just with regard to his law, Paul says in Romans 7, 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In Romans 7, of course, famous section, Paul, the internal wrestling of understanding and accepting what the law says, but this other principle in our body of the flesh that's operating and all that that implies as we think about what it means to live as justified by faith. But he makes this clear assertion that the law itself as a reflection of who God is and as God's law from the, the law from the righteous lawgiver, that his commandments are holy, they're righteous, they're good. As a lawgiver then and as an expression of his righteousness, God acts as judge. He is the judge of all. We see this, what Abraham says in Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? What's interesting there for our purposes is that he simply rightly calls God judge of all the earth. But he's also appealing to God's righteousness that the judge would judge justly that unbelievers, or I'm sorry, that believers or the righteous would not be destroyed alongside the righteous in that particular interaction when Abraham is really advocating for those who are going to be destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. But he asks, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? God is the judge of all the earth. Psalm 56, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Then Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8 also refers to the Lord as the righteous judge. And we're going to look at this verse again later. But Paul, at nearing the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. God is a righteous judge. He is a lawgiver. He has legislated his justice, and he is the judge who executes justice, all as an overflow of who he is, his perfect character. Now, there are two sides of, to the coin of how that righteous judgment is we might call dispensed, and that's what we call retributive or retributive justice and remunerative justice. God punishes unrighteousness, and God rewards righteousness. For him to do the opposite would be not in accordance with his character. God's righteousness requires that punishment be inflicted upon the unrighteousness of his creatures. God's righteousness also obligates him to reward the righteousness of his creatures. Now I'm going to give an aside here, right? All of our righteousness we know is ultimately a gift from him. God gives us rewards for the things he's enabled us to do, which is unbelievable and an overflow of his grace and mercy and his goodness and his kindness toward undeserving sinners. But with that said, it is true. It's a principle in scripture that God rewards righteousness. He's a righteous judge. He punishes unrighteousness and he will reward righteousness. 
We see this in two spots that are very similar in both sides of the coin are in these verses. Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 11. Listen to this declaration. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. To those who keep his commandments, there is one response of judgment. And to those who hate God, there is another. Similarly, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, the same idea. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Okay, what is this righteous judgment of God? Well, he will render to each person according to his deeds. Romans 2 verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will render a judgment of reward of eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, the judgment will mean wrath and indignation. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. God is righteous. He will judge the unrighteous. He will reward the righteous and without partiality. It is essential that as Christians, we understand that. We understand also, of course, God's righteousness doesn't stand alone as, as a doctrine separated from everything else. We recognize that there's no merit in and of ourselves, that we need his righteousness, that we've been declared righteous based on someone else's work. All of those related things that even our best works are tainted by sin and our flesh, but that God is gracious towards his people. But those truths, we, we shouldn't use those to sort of remove the, the distinction that Paul makes between righteous and unrighteous, and that God, as a righteous judge, must judge equitably, fairly, in accordance with his character, which means righteousness is rewarded and unrighteousness is condemned. Hebrews 6, chapter 10, even interestingly, says that God is an unjust. And I appreciate the, just the different nuance in the wording inspired by the Lord in Hebrews 6 to help us understand that. He says to his hearers, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. So he's encouraging those who are serving the Lord in the midst of trial and difficulty, ministering to other believers. And he says, God is not so unjust as to forget. Implication, if God forgot this, these righteous deeds that are done by his people, that would be unjust. He would not be acting in accordance with his character and rightly. So God, his righteousness requires that punishment be inflicted upon unrighteousness. 
and that rewards be given to the righteous. Fifthly, we see expressed God is righteous in his deliverance of the righteous. God is declared righteous in his deliverance of the righteous. This is often, you find this in the Psalms. Just one example, Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. Answer me in your faithfulness, in your righteousness. So the psalmist is appealing to the fact that God does rightly when he's making this appeal. And he says, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. Then he says, but for the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me, and in your righteousness bring my soul out of trouble. And the whole basis of the psalmist's claim there is what the Lord has promised to do on behalf of his people. So for him to act rightly with regard to the psalmist would be to act on behalf of his people as he said he would. And that's what the psalmist is appealing to. It is right for God to show mercy, to keep his word to the faithful. So it is righteous of him to act on behalf of what he has said he will do and his promises. And the psalmist is appealing to that in that psalm. Salvation, deliverance, those terms aren't synonymous with righteousness in these psalms. He's not simply using another way of saying, deliver me. He's saying, deliver me in your righteousness. Act on my behalf in accordance with your righteous and just character because you will do what you've said you will do. Related to this, sixthly, we see that God is righteous in his vindication of the righteous which is also judgment of the wicked. Because God is righteous, because God will repay the wicked and uphold the cause of the righteous, he will vindicate the righteous and judge the wicked. And that's an expression of his righteous character. Psalm 7, verses 8 through 11 says, the Lord judges the peoples. Then the psalmist says, vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. The psalmist is asking Righteous God to judge righteously, to vindicate him as one of God's righteous ones over and against the wicked. Similarly, in the New Testament, Paul, writing to a church that was suffering greatly at the hands of the wicked, the church in Thessalonica, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, points to God's righteous vindicating judgment when Jesus Christ will return. And believers will be vindicated and unbelievers will be punished and dealt with, again, in accordance with God's righteous judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 7. Again, the context here is the return of Christ, which is set forth as hope for a suffering church that was being persecuted. I'm going to read to you from the Christian Standard Bible or the CSB because I think that their translation of verse 5 is more helpful says this, it is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you, and his believers, will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering, since it is just 
for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. So he will afflict the afflictors and give relief to those who are afflicted. Ultimately, when Christ comes back, there will be vindication. Vindication of those who have trusted him and punishment of those who have not. But God is righteous in that judgment. Seventh, we see that God is righteous in judging and punishing sin in the death of Christ. God is righteous in judging and punishing sin in the death of Christ. I encourage you to go back and read through Romans 3 slowly. Really, you could read Romans 1.16 all the way through 3 slowly because the, and there's dense argumentation here and much to unpack. But it's important for us to know as we study God's righteousness that he is righteous in judging and punishing sin in our Savior's death. Christ's death was a demonstration of God's justice, God's righteousness. These verses remind us that sin was not overlooked. Sometimes we say when we're talking humanly speaking about what happened in the life of Christ, we will say this often as we approach Easter, things like this is the greatest injustice in the history of the world. And that's true insofar as it concerns mankind and what sinful judgment was rendered on our holy and pure Savior. But God punished Christ in perfect justice in accordance with his righteousness. And God's word says that it was a demonstration of his righteousness to punish Christ for our sin so that then we could be given righteousness, declared righteous that that is a reflection of God's righteousness. Stephen Wellam says, since God is the law, he cannot justify us without the full satisfaction of his holy and righteous demands. God cannot overlook our sin, nor can he relax the retributive demands of his justice. To justify the ungodly, God must take the initiative to provide a redeemer who can pay for our sin and act in perfect obedience for us. Sin has not been overlooked. If you're in Christ, your sin was fully paid for in accordance with God's perfect righteousness when he punished the Lord Jesus Christ as your substitute and as my substitute. And God's righteousness is to be praised in that. Similarly and closely related, God is righteous in giving his righteousness to those who come by faith. In other words, he does not violate his character when he declares the ungodly righteous because of what Christ did. Scripture says he's righteous in making that declaration of our righteousness. How is that possible? Well, we're saying he is acting rightly and in accordance with his character when he calls the unjust justified. Why? Because by faith, by grace through faith, we have Christ's work on our behalf. We have Christ. We stand because of his righteousness. And the scripture writers, particularly Paul in Romans, says that is a demonstration of God's righteousness. It's right for him to do that. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed 
from faith to faith. John Stott says this, the righteousness of God, in this text in Romans, is God's just justification of the unjust. His righteous way of pronouncing the unrighteous righteous, in which he both demonstrates his righteousness and gives righteousness to us. The wonder of the gospel and the wonder of our justification, it's dense and starts Phraseology there helps us see that. But God is right. He is righteous. He's acting in accordance with his character when he gives us his righteousness and declares us not guilty because of what Christ did on our stead. And understanding this aspect of our Lord's character, this attribute that he always acts in accordance with his perfections, that he's righteous and just helps us understand the magnitude and the depth of what Christ did for us. Lastly, we see that God is righteous in forgiving those to whom he gave his righteousness. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why is he righteous? Because he gave a promise to those who are his by faith that they will be forgiven. And so it is righteous. He is acting in accordance with his character when he forgives Those who are his, it is right for him to forgive. He's acting in accordance to his perfect character when he forgives believers because of Christ's work. He's righteous in forgiving us. So how can we apply this? How do we apply God's righteousness and his justice? So I've given a few suggestions. Certainly these aren't exhaustive. One is just to build off of what we've just been looking at. God's righteousness and justice inform our understanding of the gospel. They also inform our praise of the God of the gospel. We are, I'll say I, maybe not you, but I am quick to praise God for his grace and mercy. Less quick to praise him for his righteousness. Studying this reminded me that he is to be praised for his justice as well as his mercy, and for his righteousness, as well as his grace. John Owen very densely brings these two ideas together in a wonderful passage where he says, but in this interposition of Christ, in this translation of punishment from the church to him, that is, having our sins laid on on him, there is a blessed harmony between the righteousness of God and the forgiveness of sins, the the exemplification of which is his eternal glory. It was a righteous thing with God to lay the punishment of all our sins upon him so as that he might freely and graciously pardon them all to the honor and exaltation of his justice as well as to his grace. Owen is saying, will forever and all eternity glorify God not merely for his mercy and grace but also for his justice that he rightly punished sin. In this, he is glorious in the sight of God, that is Christ, in the sight of God, angels, and men. In him, there is at the same time in the divine actings a glorious resplendence of justice and mercy, of the one in punishing and in the other of pardoning. God is, was eternally well-pleased in the declaration of his righteousness and the exercise of his mercy for our salvation. 
We owe God praise and worship for his justice, the justice that we see in the punishment of our Savior for our sins. Secondly, God's righteousness shapes our view of trouble and disappointments in this life. It shapes how we view trouble and disappointments in this life. God is always acting and doing fairly. It doesn't mean that we are always treated fairly, humanly speaking, but we never have any right to hold a fist to God because of our circumstances of our life. He is just. He is righteous. All his ways are just. All his ways are righteous. That can encourage our hearts when in God's providence, sin and the unfairness that still operates in our sinful world affects us, can rebuke us when we question God in a way full of pride and hubris. God is always dealing fairly. We may not always see the immediate effects of that fair dealing, but ultimately, the righteous will be vindicated and the unrighteous will be punished. Similarly, God's righteousness shapes our view of the success of the unrighteous in this life. Think of Asaph in Psalm 73, where he's lamenting the success, the prosperity of the unrighteous. He says, as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. We see the success of the unrighteous around us. It can cause us to stumble, to question God's dealings. But God's righteousness helps us to remember that that temporary success ultimately won't stand. Asaph came to his senses as he moves through the psalm says, these are the wicked. They're, they seem always at ease. They've increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart and washed my hands in, innocent, in innocence. Then he goes on. Verse 15 of Psalm 73. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them, that is the unrighteous, in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. Then this, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Asaph eventually remembered God's righteousness and that God will repay the wicked and he will reward the righteous. Remembering God's righteousness helps us understand and rightly assess the so-called success of the unrighteous in our world. It will not always be that way. And lastly, God's righteousness informs our anticipation of final judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. Judgment is inevitable. Paul says in Acts 17 that God has appointed a man, the Lord Christ Jesus, whom he raised from the dead, to judge men. Judgment is inevitable. We see in 2 Timothy 4, again, we read it earlier, Paul's hope, Paul's hope as he neared the end of his life was on God's righteous judgment that would not leave him unrewarded, that would not leave him without the redemption that, had prom that he had been promised. And that sustained him 
and it should sustain us. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in the future. This is something Paul had not experienced yet. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Paul looked forward to the reward that he would receive from a righteous judge, and it sustained him as he fought the good fight. And lastly, Peter, as he points forward in 2 Peter 3 to what we look forward to, hastening the coming day of God. He says, according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. God's righteousness shapes our expectation and anticipation of the life to come. The new heavens and new earth will be characterized by righteousness, permanent, abiding righteousness. Everything that is done, everything about our existence then, everything about the world at that point in time will be in perfect accordance with God's righteous will. And we look forward to that, hastening that day and being motivated in our pursuit of that righteousness now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your righteousness. We thank you that you have upheld your justness and your justice, punishing your son on our behalf so that we may be declared righteous. And that you've demonstrated your righteousness in doing that for us. Help us to grasp your righteousness and may that fuel our worship both today and in our lives of faith while we look forward to the day when righteousness will dwell in the new heavens and new earth along with us, with you, in your presence for all eternity. We pray these things in our Savior's name. Amen.